Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's gallery includes Karen Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 174, Interview with Martin Trainer. Welcome, Martin. Hello, 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 hello. Welcome I mean, from, uh, hello from Lisbon. Well, all the way from Portugal, Lisbon, Portugal. We are so glad to have you with us today. It's a pleasure. I, I almost want to say, how did such a, a lovely Irishman end up in Portugal? Is this a place to retire for you? Uh, well, the Portuguese and the Irish people are pretty much the same. The, 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 we, we get on well together. Ireland has rain. Portugal has heat. So which one do you choose? You choose the heat. Like, for example, today yeah. we're what? At the minute, I think we're 18 degrees. Earlier today, we were 25 degrees. So, uh, yeah, I'd rather have that than rain. And no more snow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hear you. It snowed briefly in California. We were all very, very disturbed about it. <laughs> yeah, did everybody go out and look at it? After that, sorry, I'm just going to after last year, a couple of, a couple of weeks, uh, about two months ago, they had, like, I don't know, about two centimetres of snow up in Braga area. They do get a bit on the mountains, but it came down a little bit. And there was like 15 minutes of a news program on this. And they were yeah. interviewing this guy and talking about hard to get through the traffic. And it was so funny because I used to live in Denmark as well. And they do snow. Well, they do snow. They also do a lot less sunshine. So I can see how you might want to come south a couple degrees. Yeah, I'm here. This is where I want to be, where the heat is. Well, we wrote a lovely book that I really enjoyed reading, The Logos Prophecy. And that was just, that's new out this year, January 2023, right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. January 26th, it released. Yeah. I thought it was fun because you brought in, um, again, you're only one of a couple writers that we've run into so far that are already willing to bring in. COVID is existing. And you are the first one of those, actually, you're only really the second one that really has brought up and used common everyday conspiracy theories as an actual plot driver. And I love this. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. It's uh, your Logos Prophecy. It's a little bit of a thriller, a little bit of a supernatural. A little, so I guess I would say supernatural really is that kind of modern urban fantasy and yet it not fantastical elements, not science fiction, but urban supernatural really kind of has its own genre, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's it's the thing. Well, it's, it's a as a writer, you know, everything essentially to now, everything's been done to death. And if we don't blend, we're not going to get a we're not going to get a decent narrative that people want to follow. Because at the end of the day, it's about readers wanting to be entertained, and they need these. Because this is where they get their television from and, and Netflix. So the, the diversity of of input that they get, we have to mirror that. We have to do the same thing. Plus, it makes more for a fun, makes for a fun read, hopefully for the reader, but it also makes for a fun write. Well, absolutely. I mean, I could see elements of I. I had to go out on a limb and presume you've read Umberto Eco and Dan Brown out there. Ha, Umberto Eco, he's one of you know. He's, uh, it's always the one thing. What What is your influences uh, to this? Foucault's Pendulum and Baudelino. Definitely, Definitely. Foucault's Pendulum, maybe, you know, Name of the Rose with a little bit of the just conspiracy and we mustn't let anybody know. And yet, I, I almost wondered, have you watched, it's a show that I found on Netflix called Inside Job. 
I haven't. I've been referencing it a lot because we have an overlap. <laughs> I think you're going to love them. I mean, go out and watch it. It was only out for um, a couple of seasons. What I have done is I have collected them all. Excellent. And there's going to be a lost weekend. <laughs> I, I can see that of, of sitting and binging that because I have been, been enjoying binging Inside Job the same way I kind of enjoyed reading your book of the, what if there are these groups out there that, you know, have <laughs> this ability or that influence it different ways and not really the Illuminati because in Inside Job, the Illuminati are more run by Hollywood, but yours yeah. was yours was fun. Yours was saying, okay. They have conspiracy theorists out there who are literally tearing through like Ari. Did I say the right name right? Ari Long yeah, is, Ari, a yeah, yeah, yeah. is a conspiracy theorist. And you have another character, Jordan, who's really a science and physicist guy. But somehow they had that little bit of, and we'll just call it quantum connection and, and ways of being connected that instead of two photons that are blending together that these two have been brought together. And it's so much fun. The adventure yeah. you send them on. Yeah, the, you know, it's, you know uh, it's the old thing about quantum entanglement and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, certain particles not actually sharing um, uh, potential across the vast of the universe, but actually being the same particle. And where does that overlap? And where does that come into consciousness? Uh, sorry, that's a very serious thing. I don't want to make, make it that serious, but, you know, it is all about that. The idea was is this conspiracy stuff, but there's a, an adrenal undertrend, I hope, came through in the book of, of, a, of a consciousness shared, if you know what I mean. It um, absolutely it is. Not, the idea is that that's what drives everybody, you know, to this, what they're doing. I was almost wondering, and I'm going to recommend if you haven't, we had just interviewed Nancy Kress. She wrote a book with Dr. Robert Lanza called Observer, and it had a similar idea of how quantum entanglement, how our observation of the universe controls what we see and what everybody sees and how we all have this shared hallucination that is the universe and I'm like your your novel fits into the hers is a little bit more science fiction on that side but yours is like I could actually see how it is all part of the same universe and it was nifty but the idea is with this is with the, in the third book we should be exploring that more so the first book takes place now, it takes place, as a matter of fact, it started yesterday on the 24th of March. I noticed that, that this is indeed, yeah. <laughs> in case anybody's wondering when we recorded this, we have just passed the vernal equinox. Yeah, um, and that was that's when it started. So that takes place in the present day and the events that unfold. The next book takes place 13,000 years ago when the events that are alluded to in this book took place. And then the last book, the third book, takes place like thousands of years in the future, which I was hoping to explore at that time more of this concept, you know, the Feynman, um, you know, everything that Schrodinger and Heisenberg and stuff threw into the mix. And uh, the idea of um, uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics in that, is there an observer necessary for for the creation of matter? And is that where wave collapse comes from? Um, these are things that I used to, used to study and, and whatever but uh, before before you were then a writer of genre fiction well, t tell us about you know young martin and were you an engineer uh where did you oh, come I, from I, I, I 
done a million things in a million ways. The uh, <laughs> nutshell was I started out um, as a as a workshop technician, mechanical engineer, and making and designing and making research equipment in universities. Uh, I went on to teach a bit, and then I packed all that in and started doing bars and running bars. Where in Denmark, with friends of mine, we we did bars, basically big bars. And then I went into the book business for a while. And yeah, uh, it was in academic sales for quite a while. And then um, um, dipping in and out of exam allocation and exam delivery. And so I've kind of hopped around Europe a bit and I've done a million different things. And the great thing about it is that I did them for long enough to actually get the feel of them. Yeah. I hope that came in. Yeah. Yeah, I hope that came into my writing in some way as well, because I hope I, I, I met a lot of different people who have different traits, and I hope they come out in the characters, you know? It adds depth to them, and I, I think that uh, I think that, that shows. I mean, I think it made a difference. I was actually wondering, did you actually go visit, like, Cambodia? Because you made me desperately want to go visit it now. <laughs> uh, no. Sadly, I didn't. We were due to go. Um, this is also, and I have to mention this, this is also a brainchild of my agent, Pastor. He died a year and a half ago. Uh, Sal Nancy, he, he, uh, he was, he's been a long time in the book industry. He used to be uh, one of the guys at Random House Canada and stuff like that. And we, when I was working with uh, some stuff with Ed Greenwood, um, one of the guys behind Forgotten Realms, I was out at Ed's house in Canada and we spitballed this idea. Uh-huh. And then we forgot about it. And then Sal came to me a couple of years after that and said, do you want me to be your agent and do you want to develop this idea? So we did. Um, now, wait, wait, wait. Pause a second. You had an agent approach you because suddenly there's a whole ton of us who are desperately jealous. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. He, <laughs> he approached me because we had spitballed the idea. If we hadn't spitballed the idea, I don't think so. He was a bit of a, a conspiracy geek, the same as me. Not a believer, but a geek in that we were, I am so fascinated. Like that rabbit hole that you fall down. It's it's, fanat- it's fascinating the breadth, the extent of conspiracy theories, how they conflict each other. And that seems okay as well. And the sheer belief system that goes around them. So we were all in on that. And that's when he came to me and said, you know, I'll, I'll represent you. And But basically, at the end of the day, he's only represented me for the thing he wants to do as well. Well, you know, still. <laughs> but anyway, short story long, as they say, he lived in Cambodia for quite a while. So he led ah. me through the streets, if you like, and Google Earth. I love any book and writer that makes me so interested that I go up and read things. For instance, I remember it was early 80s, our family sponsored a Cambodian family to come over to the U.S. But this was not a time of the Internet, so I couldn't really dig in and say, tell me about the Khmer Rouge. Tell me about, you know. Yeah. So it was your your book sent me down a lot of fun rabbit holes. And I think that can be one of the neatest thing about writers of new fiction, even if it's conspiracy theory, I'm like this clearly were events that happened. And here's events that happened and realizing, I don't know that much about these events. And it makes you go read them. Yeah, um, I was lucky enough. Well, there's a bad terminology. I was brought up in both the country areas of Ireland, but also in Belfast in the 1970s. So being surrounded by 
essentially, you know, a civil war. Um, we, we, as a, as a teenager, you get interested in other struggles around the world. And we, we got to see, you know, it was very much over the news everywhere, what was happening in Cambodia or Cambodia, you know, whatever the French at the time. And, uh, you know, we had the Vietnam War, we had Cambodia, we had all these things, King and Chile and all these things. And th- there was a we being uh, surrounded by violence, you kind of get interested in other violence thinking, you know, are we alone or are people suffering the same as us? Um, so I had read a lot about the Khmer Rouge at the time. I didn't want to linger on the Khmer Rouge. I wanted it to be a pinpoint in time, but I wanted it to be a formative thing for the characters in that they were born of the very thing that they would eventually try to. Absolutely. You know, this. you have a soldier, you have a, a, a woman from a village, but it does make it interesting. I mean, the big picture that you that you draw from it, you know, in the I love universal conspiracy theories in this way, because there are a lot of romances and the way that the media influences a lot of it controls the narrative. Like there are people that have grown up in Britain their whole lives that think, oh, in Britain, we're jolly old England. I mean, the fact that you can say jolly old England without realizing England has done terrible things in the world. France has done horrible things in the world. America has done horrible. Nobody has a spotless past. And yet... Yes, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, there, there is no perfect country that has done glorious things everywhere because humans are messy. The zero, like being Irish, we have a, we, you know, we have a hundred years of, of, of century persecution and famine and everything. And Cromwell's, you know, he was essentially trying to wipe out the gales. You know, we, we had all that. Um, however, you know, if you actually read history and you go back to when the Roman regime in, in Britain fell, when the, so basically the Romans went into to 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 Britain, Romanized the Celts that were there, and then just went home a couple of year, hundred years later and left a massive vacuum. Now the Irish were raiders at that time; they were hopping across and 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 raiding and doing things. So we, you know, we we have not we don't have a perfect past either, you know. Yeah, and Cormac McCart, the Robert Howard's the Irish Reaver. You 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 got a lot of that if you. Even if you just read old fantasy, because it was still historic fantasy. Yeah, you know. So, we, like, we we grew up to to learn that the Viking raids in Ireland were a bad thing and all the rest. But you know, we were doing a fair, part, you know, a few hundred years before that, we were doing a fair crack of it ourselves. You know, we were we were hopping across to Wales and Cornwall and and taking their stuff. Well, I, I mean, having being an Irish must have this a a fabulous influence when you look at. Belfast had a little bit more of the north, and then Dublin has the raiders of everybody from the south, from the Vikings, from the Celts, from all of the different pieces, layer by layer, built into every city. Yeah, yeah, Dublin is a Viking city, and Conceal and, and those kind of areas as well. Um, the, the, the thing about the thing, I, I lived in Denmark for 10 years, and the interesting thing about the Vikings is that they got a very bad press. Yeah, they weren't nice. But the vast majority, so the guys used to go and raid and get stuff and then go home and they go look at all our stuff. But in the same time, there was other ones who just went, oh, why don't we just stay here and get on with the people around us and grow some crops? Um, Farming is better. Look at this farmland. And that is, as I say, oh, I apologize if I go off at tangents because my head explodes with 
stuff. But I always loved that one about the Genghis Khan and the Mongols. Whenever they they came and they basically one of the greatest empires and hugest empires that the world's ever seen. Yeah. And they came all the way to Europe. And then Genghis Khan got sick and they decided to go home. But some just went, nah, I'm just going to stay here. And they did that all along the way. So that's why you have these little pockets all over Asia and, and some areas of, of, of Eastern Europe where you can map the DNA of Mongolian people from the Genghis Khan invasions. It's, I, I just love that idea. I love the idea of people just go, nah, I'm just there. Well, one of the things that that I've noticed because my my husband's English and so and I I have traveled through England just because I liked it and um, York most of the city the street names and stuff are 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 named because of the Vikings. Yeah, that's that came from Danelaw, uh, the the Danelaw area that was after uh, um, uh, Ragnar Roth, Rothbrook came over and he did his thing. And there was kind of, you know, the Alfred backwards and forwards and the marshes and the, getting the army together and all this. There was Danelaw, which was essentially from the Midlands up to that area. Like We lived in a town called Southby, um for a while, me and my wife, in Leicestershire. Now, the B-Y on the end in Danish is boo, which means town. <laughs> oh, ha. So, I love it. So we are thinking that that is the town of somebody called Silas or Sila. So it was... Silabu, uh, that's how you pronounce it in Danish, and it, it's a name that would be quite at home in Denmark or or Nor or Norway. Well, if you asked if you asked the standard American on the street, what is the basis of your system of laws? There are very few people that understand our laws. Are if you go back in time far enough, it's Dane law, Vergild. It is Dane law. Um, we're slightly different in Ireland because we come from the Brehan laws, which were the Celtic laws. Exactly. But but there was a merge. There was. Anglo-Saxons, you know, they're very big on courts, but I like the moot. <laughs> Except for, of course, in America, we have Louisiana, which is based on old Roman law. But that's just because we have French action. Okay, is that right? I did. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so we have one state that it is very hard as a lawyer from another state to go practice law in Louisiana and vice versa. Mm. They have the same in Britain, in that Scottish law is based on the Brehan laws yeah. from when the Scots went over to, to Scotland, yeah. which were Gaels from Ireland. So they their their law tends to be based more on Brehan law than Anglo-Saxon law, which is Dane law. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, so, yeah, that is why uh, there has to be whole levels of study to, to do this. And that's why buying a house in Scotland is a completely different procedure to England. And likewise, in Ireland, is a completely different procedure to England. I can see that. But in the Logos prophecy, in your book, you also have a combination of symbols, which was interesting because you said, here's three spirals in this kind of a cross but it is it a religious cross or a crossroads or a different thing and i don't want to give it too much away because we want people to go by the fall of the ancients book one but do we get all of our spirals then from the danish really because they were the ones who brought it to ireland no actually it's prior prior to that it actually comes from the mesolithic peoples okay that went into there's an interesting thing i know an interesting thing about the mesolithic people in ireland in that none of them remain in every other country, Mesolithic led to Neolithic, which led to the modern age or whatever, the Iron Age and all. But the Mesolithic people actually died out. And now the Neolithic people were the spiral people, but it's believed that there was some prior to that. I'm not an archaeological expert. 
I can't give you a definite amount, but um, yeah, they come from the spiral, the, the tri scale is pre iron age. Well, then tell us a little bit about the research that you did because this has a lot of, a little bit of metaphysics, a little bit of mon- modern quantum physical theory, a whole lot of archaeological interest. Tell us about the research and how did you sort it and decide what you were going to put in? Well, it was a bit like the it was a bit like the conspiracy theories. Um, um, funny, I did an interview the other day, and they were asking me, you know, you know, how did you pick the conspiracy theories? And I said, well, I had to be, I had to, so I had to pick the direction and the narrative of the book itself, how I wanted the book to go, and and then cherry pick the conspiracy theories that would fit that. And I did the same with the history. So basically, because like conspiracies and history, and you know, it's it's vast, it's huge. So I went to try and find a way of grounding that, particularly on the history. I tried to find similarities around the world. Things that even though historically or archaeologically they don't overlap, they could be perceived to overlap given the the idea that the story is everything's based in conspiracy theory. So that's what I did. I tried to find similarities around the world and where things could bump together. Now, I, I want to ask a pure tools question because we have a couple friends that say they live and die for note keeping via Scrivener. Are you a, a electronic tool person or do you have a thousand notebooks or is there secretly somewhere something with pictures on your wall and a bunch of red yarn putting it all together? T- t- tell us about that. I have a notebook here in front of me. I have a notebook here to my side. I have paper in the top drawer. And I have a color note on my phone. Color note gets most of it because it's the one I use when I'm out in a coffee shop. So I just go, ooh, ah, 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 and get my phone out and I write it into the color note thing. But when I'm sitting at my desk, everything else goes into these two notebooks, which being an engineer has a system. So the one to my left is book related actual narrative and story. And the one in front of me is things I have to do. Can I ask something incredibly personal then? Nobody's ever admitted to just having this and separating it that way. Read us one line from each. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Randomly. Open it up. Okay. Randomly. I want to dive into your brain in a coffee shop here. So there's no such thing as free will. So it's a, this is actually from a book. So Mateus again, check Ari's last text. So there's no such thing as free will. There is just control. And that's from that. That's from that. So that was a that was an actual dialogue. dialogue I wanted to put in the book. All right. And this other one is things I have to do. Dublin show. I have to get it in by the 29th of March. I've got Jeannie, Chaz, and Karen <laughs> here, and I've got Twitter campaign, and I've got contact for the review re books for backing. So that's that's those two. And on color note. Uh, which is the more fun thing because this is where my mind goes nuts. Uh, I, I am, I am, uh, I finished the first of a fantasy trilogy, and in, in this one, I've got, I've got some notes I've put in. So one of them is death claimed him in the worst way possible, buried beneath an avalanche of rock, mud, and gravel. So that's something I will want to put into the book. I like it. I like it. Yeah. No, that's, it's beautiful because we have so many, I think people have an illusion that, oh, yes, writers just sit around comfortably, you know, by their fireplace writing. And that's the meticulous organization and note taking and writing things down and keeping track 
is is important and i love that you're able to illustrate that that your life is not more free form it's almost less free form because you've chosen to herd all of this together in your brain yeah it's when you it's it's the thing about it for me is i either witness hear or think of something that fits perfectly with the story. And they're like, you know, Stephen King and his what ifs, for example, he's standing in a grocery store and then he has a what if moment. What if, uh, I always loved that one about the, the, the mist. When he wrote The Mist, he was standing in a grocery store and he thought, what if a pterodactyl just smashed through the window and skirted down that aisle, throwing boxes of Kellogg's cornflakes and everything all over the place? Right? And that's his what if, and then the story comes from that. Me, I can, in a similar way, I'd be standing and I'll hear somebody shout at each other, like something like, hey, Dermot, where did you get your lawnmower? You know, and and I go, oh, that would fit lovely because it's 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 live and it's it's happening and it fits with storytelling. Because one of the things that I've noticed over the years as I, as I got, well, I got more writery, I noticed how soapy things get in books, as in like, Soap operas. People like to identify with the people that they're in. They like to feel at home in the book. So even though you're writing something on Alpha Centauri with uh, dimension hopping space aliens, people like to know that the people that are in the book are relatable. Uh, that's where the likes of uh, Battlestar Galactica went very good with the remake. We got to really know the characters. Or The Walking Dead. Oh, yeah. We got to really know the characters. I actually have noticed that as a, I mean, I, others have talked about it too, but in a trend, when I read older written science fiction from the 60s to even the 80s, you didn't get a lot of the emotion, not just emotional, but all of the crazy things that characters think, their insecurities, their life, their fact that, you know, we are all on a spectrum somewhere. And how much of that to put in or not to put in is an interesting balance and dance because you have a character that is deeply, deeply into conspiracy theories, which mean for, for me spoke to, ah, this is a person with anxiety and, and an interesting way of how do they balance with a person that's less in, who, who studies them, but from a more intellectual point of view. So you have two completely different brains that you're balancing, telling their stories through the book. And it's cool. You're coming from where the brainchild of it essentially came for the two characters, because I went, we've, we've got this conspiracy theorist who is, like, she's at the bottom of the rabbit hole yeah. in belief system. And we've got this guy who likes bizarre stuff, but he's trying to prove it in science. And I went, what if we just hit them off each other? Yes. And see what happens, you know? It's, and we throw in that she's a she's a backstreet London first generation from a Cambodian Chinese background. He's a guy from New York with an Irish parent and a and a, and a Caribbean mother. They're very far apart. She's raw and ready. He's academically trained. Let's throw them together and give them an impossible task. Yeah, do do your thing. You know your thing. Yeah, <laughs> was, I really enjoyed that. Is they're like, yeah, do do the do the weird mojo thingy. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Do you know, you you must be able to do so. You you this is your thing. <laughs> well, it's your thing. You know, and and I wanted that to be, and that's where the soapy thing comes in. Is that if you had a real life situation where, say, you got two work colleagues, and one was a conspiracy, and the other one was a was a, a physics academic, 
and they had a problem to solve that was going to change the universe, I, they would it would get soapy. They have to relate with each other. They have to build a relationship and be uh, interconnected. So, yeah, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly, Ari has a, what can you call, a colourful turn of phrase. Yeah. Now, you've, you've written, a, before we got to uh, this beautiful glory of conspiracy theory and how, the I'm going to call it the universal conspiracy theory, you had a couple other fun things you've published out there. For instance, I, I didn't actually read them yet, but I giggled wildly that you have the tales of Trumple Thinskin. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's You have Tiny Hands Press. I literally snorted my coffee, so thank you for that moment of pain because that was hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that was uh, that, that's uh, that's actually the same publishers as this. That's another one. There. That's their comedy imprint. I'm kind of the first guy with this publisher. This is the thing. They're a new venture, Trips Publishing. They've got two imprints. One is this, uh, the the Fire Hornet Codex, which is for stuff like the Locust Prophecy and some other uh, urban fiction, which another writer that's been brought into the stable. Uh, Steve Bowden, he's going to publish soon, hopefully. And then the other side was the Tiny Hands Press, which was born out of Trumple Thinskin to be a comedy satire, comedy books, essentially, imprint. So, well, good, yeah. Good satire is important. I mean, years ago, I belonged to a group called Society for Creative Anachronism, and a couple of guys wrote some group satire of, of this as if it were real. And then there's another version out now called The Scallion. And some people are like, how dare they do satire? Like, if if you think it's about you, then maybe you should examine yourself. Because if, somebody, yeah, if somebody can satire you so completely and you feel like they're making fun of you, maybe you should do a little bit more navel gazing in the world. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The funny thing is the people who are the best ones to satirize are the ones who don't realize that they have the multitude of traits <laughs> that make that satire so easy. Exactly. Like, there was no difficulty in doing Trouble Things. No. Uh, I always get that great quote of um, uh, Tina Fey's when she was doing, um, oh, I've forgotten her name. Palin. Oh, yeah. Palin. Palin. Yeah, when she was doing Palin and she was doing her on Saturday Night Live and somebody in an interview asked her, you know, how do you make it so funny? And she said, well, I dress up to look exactly like uh, Palin and I say everything that she says in exactly the same way she says it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and therein lies the comedy. That, that's true. I mean, I was so embarrassed when she was front and center, uh, when she was like running for things and stuff. It was it was just a national, uh, another a national embarrassment. My only comfort is the more that we study politics all around the globe, the more that we realize that everybody's a little bit embarrassed right now in their country. Everybody's embarrassed. Yeah. Everybody. I mean, the Italians just got something annoying back again. <laughs> it's, yeah. And we all have those parties because there's always somebody that, you know, wants to be mean or blame somebody else because it helps them get more money and more wealth. And that's what I love about these con your conspiracy theories is that you, you give the why and what if, and the what if in the conspiracy theory as, as sort of meta satire science fiction makes this really fun. 
I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it because that was the intention. The intention was to, the intention actually was, was look, it's, it's the same thing as with doing the Trump Thinskin books. There must be something we can do. It's an election year, it's 2020, and there's a big election, and it's probably the biggest election had been for a long time with Biden against, uh, against Donald mm-hmm. Trump. It was, you know, it, it mattered a lot to not only to the United States, but to the, to the world. It was a big deal. And, um, it's the same with these conspiracy theories. They've become everywhere. Whole media budgets are spent on conspiracy theories. Like the ancient aliens television, and I do invert air quotes, uh, documentary, is one of the best funded documentaries I've ever seen. And it's like, a, to say a spurious is, is, is mild. So I thought like there's all this money coming into this, all this, and there's, there's conspiracy theories everywhere, particularly around the COVID outbreak and whatever. And I went, there must be mileage in this, in that it has become a worldview, and therefore we must be able to to make some entertaining stories out of it. I really enjoyed it. And uh, when are we expecting the next one out? Two years. Okay. <laughs> is the plan? Two years. Two years. Uh, January 23 was this one, January 25 is the next one, and then January 27. That's the plan, to give plenty of time for things to bed in, basically for people to have some fun with it. <laughs> I think it's just going to gonna get weirder. And are we expecting more out of uh, good old Helma? I was just in Boston, just got back this morning, so I was very <laughs> delighted to discover that you had a, a Boston PD. And like, now that I've been in Boston, your book is very plausible. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, the uh, the whole Boston cop detective thing, it fascinated. I was going to put them in New York, but then I thought, no, no, because no. I think Boston's edgier. Boston is, there were more churches. It, it caught me by surprise of seeing how many churches there are in downtown Boston. And the lead character, well, not the lead character, the lead character is the detective, but the lead... Aunt, Jeremiah Poots. Is, yeah, yeah, he's... Um, well, I'll not give too much away, but he's a he's a he's he's a pastor. He's running a little small cult, so you know um, it fits well. With, ah. Yeah, with Boston, it fitted perfect with Boston. The more I talk to people who I know from Boston, yeah, 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 Boston is in fact a, a very interesting place, and there's still a very strong Irish contingent, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I have actually seen race riots between Irish and non-Irish white people. Fighting in the streets. Um, I would, the I Irish would, Italian and Irish Russian is very interesting there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But the main thing is, is, is that, as I said, I could have done New York, but New York has a defined identity. New York is essentially a country on its own. Uh, you know, you've got the United States and then you've got New York. Um, there's only a handful of cities around the world that can say that. London would be another one. You know, they're, they're in the country, but not off the country. I would argue that L.A. also is its own. Los Angeles is its own. Yeah. But Boston is definitely, a, it's it's born of the United States and it's born of the hundreds of years that formed it and the comings and goings of the various migrations of people who come in and out and settled and were prejudiced against and then rose to power and whatever. <laughs> and it has spiky edges to it, you know? And that's why I liked yeah. the idea of a, a cop who is pissed off with everything, living in a place that works her hard. Well, there's many Americans that aren't even aware of the Boston Tea Party, the whole 
oh yes, it's we're doing it for the tax on tea. I'm like, do you guys actually realize that the British removed the tax on tea? So all of our boys that were in turned out later to be in government were actually tea smugglers. Yeah. And their business was undercut by a lack of taxation. So <laughs> Yeah, was, you know, you got a business man. You know? we, we, we were built, we were a nation built on a conspiracy theory. It's beautiful. Yeah. Which nation isn't? <laughs> right. What <laughs> advice would you give to a young writer starting out? Oh, oh, that's a question. Uh, read, read until yeah, just read, 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 and read, and read a diverse amount of books. So have your sci-fi period, have your fantasy period, and do a lot of non-fiction. Instead of researching and your research showing, essentially, your your wealth of knowledge that you've built into yourself makes the research that you build it and put into your fiction books and stories a lot easier, I think. Um, and the other one is is short story your brain out. Just keep doing short stories. And then there's a point. I think there's a switch point. I don't know whether you agree. There's a switch point then when you're doing short stories where you actually go, do you know, I might be good enough to have a crack at a long piece. Or somebody in your reading group happens to look and say, yeah, Jeannie, this is a novel, not really a short story. And yes, that happens. It does. We will put links to the fascinating things we discussed during this episode on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Martin, this has been wonderful. It's been delightful. Thank you for coming on our show. Well, thank you for having me on. Everybody, go out and read The Logos Prophecy. It's out on Fire Hornet Codex 2023. You're going to love it. It's so much fun. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineers and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast to the Morning Person, performed by Michael Lingberg. You can hear more from Michael on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs and any decent coffee shop that actually opens before 8 a.m. because come on, people. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs>